Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that you will help us to uh, focus on your word, that uh, it speaks to us as a church, but also speaks to us as individuals. And we pray that we will make, examine our lives as we see the future unfold in the visions that you gave to your servant John. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, you need a Bible so with you, because we're going to be looking through the passage. But... Uh, if not, uh, you can just look over your shoulder of uh, the person next to you. Now, um, this is uh, Pastor Mark Devers, uh, who is quite a famous guy in New York City, and he's a very famous preacher. If you look him up on the internet, you can find him. And as he was preaching on this passage, he quoted uh, this writer called Louis Lappin, who I've never heard of. But uh, apparently this is quite a well-known writer. In the 50s in America, he went to Yale University, and uh, <clears throat> while he was there, he was looking for a church. Uh, and he uh, asked his lecturer, and his lecturer told him there was no need to go to church because he said that uh, organized religion was dead. And uh, Louis Laplan said, why? And apparently the guy said, because God is dead. And uh, all that was uh, left to do, all that was needed to do was to conduct an autopsy report to find out the cause and time of death of God. Uh, Was it because he was assassinated by agents of the French Enlightenment, uh, those atheist philosophers? Or was it because God was drowned on a journey to the Galapagos Islands by Charles Darwin, whose theory of evolution supposedly went against the common biblical view of the time? Or perhaps God was blown to bits by German artillery in World War I and II, which showed uh, suffering and the inhumanity of mankind? Or maybe God was killed on a consulting room by Sigmund Freud, who said that everything was in the mind, even God. And that's why Mark Beavis was quoted as saying that there was a growing trend in America over the last few centuries about a disbelief in God, and even more so a disbelief in the wrath of God, an angry God. So he quotes uh, this guy called John Updike, who I've read before, and he says, Science has freed us from the fear of a wrathful God. And I think that he makes an interesting observation in that uh, people don't mind so much if you talk about God or say you're a Christian, if you talk about God and love. You know, that, uh, this, that sort of Christian can be attractive, even a nice person, although a bit ineffective, right? But when you talk about God's wrath, people start feeling uncomfortable. Uh, and I think that's very true even in Singapore, because just last week I was talking to a member of our church, who said that, you know, at church we can talk about wrath and everything, the wrath of God, but the problem is that when you talk to non-Christians about the wrath of God, they start feeling very, very uncomfortable uh, about uh, God's wrath and judgment. And people see it as a very negative thing about the wrath of God. Some people say that you know, they wish you could take the wrath of God out of the Bible. Uh, they're embarrassed by it. But should we be embarrassed by God's judgment or the wrath of God? Well, let's look here at chapter 15 and see whether that's the right attitude that we should take to the judgment of the wrath of God. So in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them... God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image, and over the number of his name. And they held harps given them by God, and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, uh, the vision keeps changing here, right? And the new vision that we have here is uh, of people in heaven. Uh, it's a bit like, a, you know, when I'm watching a DVD at home, sometimes by mistake, instead of pressing the, pressing the fast forward, I press the chapter selection all the way to the end, right? And then we see the ending of the movie, and then all my, my kids and my wife complain that, you know, now we know the ending, right? 
Okay, so that, I think it's almost like this what's happening here, isn't it? Because uh, John sees this vision and fast forwards all the way to the end and he sees these people and they are described as victorious. Okay, victorious. Now, it's quite interesting because uh, if you look here at the, next, uh, the slide up here, these are the same people who have been described in different ways. In chapter 7, they were described as the 144,000 on the earth who are sealed in the name of God. Then in, in uh, Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 7, he sees the same multitude in heaven with the Lamb. And in Revelation chapter 14, he sees the 144,000 in heaven with the Lamb again. And here, he sees the same people, except they're described in different ways. They're not described as 144,000, not described as being the Lamb, but they're described as being what? Victorious. Right? Verse 2, they're seen as being victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. And that's why they sing the Song of Moses. Okay, the Song of Moses uh, recalls uh, God's people Israel who were enslaved in Egypt and they were brought free from Egypt into the Promised Land. And when they were released from this bondage to Pharaoh and, and, and Egypt, they, they sang this song in celebration of victory. And that's why in Exodus chapter 15, this is what they sang. I'm not going to sing this song for you, and I'm only going to show you a bit of it. But you'll see what I'm talking about, right? Then Moses and Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army He has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They have sank like a stone. Now, what we see here is that they're singing the song, the Song of Moses, which, which really focuses on the last great miracle that God did uh, when He brought them out of Egypt, which was where they went through the Red Sea, God parted the Red Sea, and when Pharaoh and his uh, chariots went through, He covered it up water and they all died. So they're singing the song of victory, right? It's a bit like a soccer team which wins, and they're singing, you know, we are the champions. And here, this is what they're singing. You know, they're singing a victorious song. They're remembering what God has done. And here, I want you to notice a very interesting thing, right? They say, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. Now, we often uh, don't think of God that way, as a warrior. Uh, there is a theology, but we always think of God as a shepherd, God as, uh, you know, king. But actually, when you look at the, the theology of God, in a systematic theology, there is a theology of God as a warrior, as a great warrior. And that's what's uh, being remembered here, right? God's people were victorious in the time of Moses because God, the warrior, defeated Pharaoh and brought them into the promised land. And here, on the last day, when they fast-forwarded to the end, God, the warrior, frees his people, but this time it's not Egypt and Pharaoh, but frees his people from Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And he brings them victory over them. So judgment here is actually seen as a victorious thing. God's wrath is victory. And that's why when you actually read Exodus and you read chapter 15 and 16, there are many echoes. You know, when you're reading it, it's sort of like, hey, I've read this before. First of all, in chapter 15 verse 1, you notice how he describes the judgments. It's not seals. It's not seen as trumpets. He describes it as plagues. Because the plagues is what happened in uh, in, in, in Exodus, right? Uh, also, they're standing by the sea, just like Israel stood by the sea when the, the Red Sea caused um, the, the, the Red Sea to close over Pharaoh and his army. 
And also, if you notice here, these last seven plagues only attack those who belong to the beast. Just like in Exodus time, you know, all the plagues, or most of the plagues seem to only attack Pharaoh and, and, uh, and Egypt. And they seem to leave the Israelites uh, relatively free of all the suffering. So I've got up here a slide, right, where you can see there's a parallel between uh, the, the plagues, okay? Here, oh, these are the trumpet plagues, okay? To, um, to the parallels in Exodus. Oh, there's another flight slide, actually, further up. This, this is the wrong slide, actually. Next one. Keep going, keep going. Keep going, keep going. Next one. Next one. Ah, this one. Oh, actually, it doesn't matter. I think I've copied the wrong one here. But anyway, okay, go back to, the, go back to where we were before. Okay, let's stop. Okay. So, um, these actually are the trumpets, but if you look at uh, the bowls, it's actually very similar as well. Because in the bowls, it says that in the beginning, everything turns to blood, right? You remember? Well, this one also turns to blood. Uh, it talks about darkness, and there's darkness, and, and things like that. So, how we're supposed to see uh, God's judgment and God's wrath is victorious, as victory. Right? It's like, those people in, in, uh, in Moses' time, they, they, they recalled what God did and it was victorious. And today, as these people recall back to God's final judgment, this is again victorious. And that's why in verse 3 and 4, it says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will fear you, O God, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, it's a bit like a camera angle. Remember we kept saying that uh, the seals, the judgments and the bowls are reflecting different angles of the same thing? So, I think that's the way we're supposed to see it because if you look at the next slide, right, when you looked at the seals, it's a very general sort of judgment. But when you look at the trumpets, as you look at the last three trumpets, it's really focused exclusively on uh, those who are non-believers but they are given the opportunity to repent. But here, uh, in this chapter, they are really focusing on uh, a general judgment on those who belong to the beast. And for those who belong to the beast, it doesn't talk about repentance here, it's talking about victory over uh, Satan and the beast. Now, I wonder whether when you read this passage and you think of God's wrath, whether we are responding the right way. Because, you know, we feel embarrassed about it. You know, it's like, oh, no, so sorry to talk to you about God's judgment. But look here. At the last day, God's people are celebrating God's judgment. Great and marvelous are your deeds. They're singing this song with harps, right? A joyful instrument. God's judgment is something that we will celebrate on the last day. Now, we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. Without God's judgment, who would judge Hitler? Without God's judgment, who will judge those who committed all the atrocities in the killing fields in Cambodia? Without God's judgment, uh, who will judge those who persecute Christians? Uh, I was reading not too long ago, uh, uh, there's a family of missionaries who were in India. And uh, they used to travel around by a bus. And uh, during the night when they were sleeping there, some people came and surrounded the bus, locked them in and, and burnt the bus and burned them up alive. So without God's judgment, how will there be victory for God's people? See, God's judgment is a parallel to what God does in Exodus. 
He uses His judgment to gain victory over those who are against Him and His people. And we should not see it as any different. I remember when I was in Australia, a friend of mine said of Christians that they are losers. You know, losers. Right? And he said, you know, Christians are losers. And in, in, in a real world situation, Christians do lose out. Uh, you know, he was saying, you know, Christians, you all give money away to people, but uh, non-Christians, they keep the money and spend it on themselves. Christians do the right thing and they suffer because of it. And they won't do the wrong thing and again they suffer for it. And in chapter 2 and 3, we saw that uh, Christians are losers in even greater ways. They're persecuted, they're put to death. Therefore, in the world that is governed by and influenced by Satan and the beast and the false prophet, uh, Christians are losers. But here we see that judgment actually makes them winners. Remember Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. We are winners, not in this world, but winners in the last days because God comes to judge. So we should not see judgment or God's wrath as a negative thing, you know, something we should be embarrassed about, you know. Uh, excuse me, it's about talking about God's wrath. Because a correct understanding of God's wrath tells us that actually it is the way in which we triumph at the last day. Now, it's not just about uh, victory that uh, chapter 15 and 16 talk about God's judgment. Because in chapter 16, it seems to say that God's judgment doesn't seem to make much difference to those who are non-Christians. They do not repent. Now in chapter 16, um, it begins by talking about how the judgment is poured out on those who are enemies of God. Chapter 16 verse 1 speaks, I, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And it goes on and goes on, right? Now, again, uh, I was saying to you, uh, we see in the book of Revelation a series of seven. Yeah, I hope that you can sort of get a structure in your mind so you can get your mind around the book of Revelation. So if you look at the next slide, right? Um... Oh, did I miss this? Okay, don't worry about this. Next slide. You see, they were actually, it begins with seven churches. Okay, but I left that out because then it would be too small. But okay, but the judgment, the real visions actually begin with the seven seals of judgment, the seven trans- trumpets which talk about judgment, then there were seven visions. Uh, if you go back, you can actually break it out into seven, okay, the beast, the woman, all the stuff. Okay, so seven visions of spiritual conflict. Then again, seven bowls of judgment. Now, as we move further and further into the book of Revelation, it's very, very clear to me that there is not a chronological uh, timeline which follows this. Okay? It's not as if we have seven seals, and then after that, in, in real time, real historical time, we have seven trumpets, and then again, real time, historical time, we have seven visions, and then real historical time, we have seven bowls. Okay? Because as we look at the different... Uh, visions, they interlap and they, and they interlace and it's almost like a tapestry, you know, like when you're knitting something. So let's, uh, let me give you an example here. Uh, we look at the sun, okay, next slide. Now, in the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. Black lah. Turned completely black. Now, when the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, that means the fourth trumpet, a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, 
so that a third of them turned dark, and a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Now, we've already said that it cannot be sequential because if it's totally black at the sixth seal, then it cannot be one-third black at the fourth trumpet. But here, if you look at the bowls, when the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, that means the fourth bowl, the sun was given power to scorch people with fire, and they were seared by the intense heat. They cursed the name of God for control over these plagues, but they refused to repent or glorify Him. See, so the sun can't go from black to one-third black to full power. Okay? So what's happening here is, is these visions are sort of interlaced and overlapping. Okay? And, and, and that's the way we're supposed to see it. The next slide. Again, Babylon, right? Babylon keeps being mentioned over and over again. And it keeps falling down and getting up again, falling out and getting down, right? getting up, right? So, in the vision we saw last week, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Okay, so, it seems as this Babylon is punished in chapter 14, verse 8. But in chapter 16, verse 19, it says, the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. So, did Babylon fall down or did Babylon split, split into three parts in the earthquake? Uh, well, then in chapter 18, 19, it talks about Babylon over and over again. So, it's not saying that Babylon collapsed and then it was split into three parts. It's sort of looking at it from different angles. So why are we looking at it from different angles? How different are the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls? Because there must be a reason why we're given three visions of why it's a similar event, isn't it? Well, next slide. Okay, I think there's a growing intensity, right? It's sort of saying that judgment gets greater and greater. It's greater within the seven, a series of seven, each series of seven, right? It gets worse and worse and worse. But as we look from the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, it gets worse and worse and worse as well. So in the seals, we remember one quarter, the number quarter keeps coming out, one quarter of the people were killed. But then the trumpets, one third of the, 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 the people are killed. But here, everything is affected, the land, the, all the sea, all the ocean, all that is affected. So there's an escalation, right? there is an intensity, there is things coming to a climax. But, the problem is that even though things are growing in intensity and climax, people refuse to repent. I think that's the message. See, look at what it says there in verse 8 to verse 11 of chapter 16. Okay, this is very important, so we need to pay attention to this, right? The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify Him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent for what they had done. See, notice that phrase there? Over and over again, they refuse to repent. Okay? Now, uh, the next slide. Did, um, I think I missed something. Next slide, yep. Okay, so you can see here, for those of you who are wondering, you know, how things are getting worse and worse, the slide is up here. Okay? But you notice, even though things keep getting worse and worse and worse, 
within each seal, I mean within each vision and across the visions, people refuse to repent. And you notice here, Luke said, they know that it is God who is judging them. But they refuse to repent of what they had done. Now, I like what someone said in the Pongo Bible study on Thursday, right? We often say that seeing is believing. Right? If only people could see God, they will believe. But this is the opposite. People see God, but they do not repent. Seeing is not believing. Look very closely at the passage. They know that it's because of the God of heaven who is punishing them, but they refuse to repent. They will not change. Now, I sometimes wonder whether we feel embarrassed about God's judgment or God's wrath because we think, oh, no, poor people. You know, when they're suffering in hell, uh, all these people say, ayah, if only when I was alive, uh, I knew about God, I would have become a Christian, I wouldn't be in hell now. Do, do we sometimes think like that? I think like that. I think, oh, you know, imagine, oh, there are all these people who will be suffering and they'll be so regretful on the last day because if only they had known Jesus before, they wouldn't suffer like this. But if you look at this passage, people know God, but they refuse to repent. So C.S. Lewis, in this uh, book called The Great Divorce, which uh, is one of my favorite books, it's not about marriage and divorce, right? it's about something else, it's a, it's, it's a very strong imagery. It talks about how people can still be in hell, right? people can still be suffering and still hate God, and still be angry at God. See, that's the difference. You see, as a Christian, we sin and, we, and God punishes us and we say, ouch, that's really painful. Uh, I think it's time to repent and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. But for the non-Christian, they sin and they go, ouch, that hurts. But instead of saying that, they say, God has no right to punish me. I hate God for punishing me. The atheist can curse God. Isn't that the two different responses? So I remember uh, one of my sons, I won't tell you who, uh, goes to school and I went to uh, listen to one of the parenting talk, parent talks or something. And the principal was telling us this uh, real life uh, event that happened recently, that wasn't too long ago, of how he caught some people, students cheating in an exam or test at school. So he punished them, the children. One of the parents uh, came to complain to him about him punishing uh, the student, the son, and said, if I had known that you were going to punish my son, I would have told him to lie. Right, so rather than, you know, the parent telling the child, okay, you know, cheating is wrong, you deserve this punishment. He actually went and told the principal, I would have not only have told my son to, to know that cheating was wrong, I would have told him to lie to get out of the punishment. See, isn't that the attitude that's being shown here? that rather than people saying, yes, God, you are right for punishing and judging me, I need to repent. The world says, God, you have no right to punish me. I want to live this way. Right. Uh, who, who gave you the right to rule over me? So John Chapman, uh, another preacher, says that, you know, everything we do is habit forming. You know, learn to you brush your teeth. You brush your teeth after 21 days, it becomes a habit. You know, floss your teeth. You floss for more than 21 days, it becomes a habit. But in the same way, saying no to God becomes habit-forming. When you keep saying no over and over and over again, it becomes so much easier to say no to God the very next time. And in this passage, the people keep saying no, no, no. Even as 
they see God and they see that the punishment is getting worse. So I wonder, where are you today, right? So if you look at the next slide, uh, this is a picture that was drawn by Sarah again. Oh no, I saw the name of the writer. Uh, but you see, all, you know, here all the people are suffering with source and everything, but the people are still, the people are still rebelling against God. Is that, is that you, I wonder? Right? Uh, is, that so, is, that, is that a picture of your life where you're, you're doing things which are wrong, and you know God exists, but you still refuse to repent of what you know God wants of you? Uh, I have this picture in my wall. I got it from Helping Hand. So Helping Hand, you can go buy things from Helping Hand. They've got these pictures. All right, next slide. And this is what it says. God has promised forgiveness to your repentance. But he has not promised tomorrow for your procrastination. So God has promised that yes, he will forgive you. But he has not promised you tomorrow uh, that you can make up your mind. Right? The decision has to be made now. And I used to have this t-shirt which I bought in Australia. I don't know what happened to it. I was asking my wife. But I, I totally lost it now. And it says, those who wait for the 11th hour to find God, kick the bucket at 10.30. Right? And I think... That's what this passage is saying, isn't it? You can keep waiting and waiting and waiting and not repenting, but ultimately, maybe you die, maybe God, Jesus comes beforehand and it's too late. So, God's judgment of God's wrath speaks of the victory for God's people. But unfortunately, God's judgment does not necessarily bring repentance in people's lives or a glorifying of Him. But, what is the nature of judgment? How does God judge? Does He judge the same way that human, judge, uh, human judges? Well, look at verse 5 of chapter 16. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now, how do you think of justice? Uh, the justice system around the world, usually in Singapore and overseas, is, is a sort of a, a, a rehabilitative just, justice system. right? We, we hope that we send you to jail for five years or whatever, and you come out, you won't do it again. We want to rehabilitate you to society. But the, the justice here, that's seen in the Bible, is a, it's a retributive system is that you get what you deserve so these people the enemies of God they shed the blood of the saints and prophets and God gives them blood to drink as they deserve and the basis of God's judgment is that they're true and they're just now uh, that's very different from our uh, system in the world today uh, you know you, you, you may not get what you deserve uh, our system is flawed. It is not a, a true or just system in a sense. Because, first of all, we are flawed. So we might catch the wrong person, send the wrong person to jail. Uh, we might send someone to too much. Uh, we, it's based on evidence, isn't it? So uh, we might lose evidence or not find the evidence. Or the, the evidence might be corrupted. But God's judgment is perfect. It is true and it's just. Now, I'll give you an example. When I was young, I committed a crime, okay, which I regret now. And I wasn't a Christian then. I was young and foolish. You know, when I was young, I tried to impress a, a, a group of friends of mine. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll steal something. So I stole a Toblerone chocolate bar. Okay? And, uh, you know, 
I, I stole it, but my friends were not very impressed anyway. So, anyway, I, I feel very bad looking at it now, but was I ever charged for the crime? Did I pay for it? Where's the evidence? I ate the chocolate bar a long time ago, right? The shop's not there anymore. My friends probably can't remember it because they weren't very impressed. Right? So, where is justice? It is not true and just. But God will still ju- judge me for stealing that Toblerone chocolate bar, isn't it? See, that's what, that's what God's judgment is like. We get what we deserve. And therefore, as Christians, we shouldn't be diluting the truth about God's wrath, right? It's not like if you're a good person, you've done more good than bad, uh, God accepts you, no. Everybody has to pay for everything they've done. They get what they deserve. There is no diluting of uh, God's wrath here. Now, if that's the case, and everybody gets what they deserve, then all the more it makes us understand why we need Jesus. Because I can't pay for what I've done wrong myself. I can't run away from it. I need somebody else to pay for it. And that's why, if you look up here, the next slide, right, you'll see that Jesus, uh, in the four Gospels, keeps talking about the cup. Right? Before he goes to the cross, he keeps saying, I've got to drink this cup. I've got to drink this cup. So in Matthew, Mark and Luke, it records Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In John chapter 18, Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now the cup here is not a, a, a nice way of saying, take something unpleasant away from me in the future. Right? It's not that I've got, I got my Chinese exam tomorrow, take this cup away from me. Right? It's not talking like that, okay? The cup represents the cup of God's wrath. See, that's why in chapter 16, verse 19, it says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. So if we understand that God's judgment and God's wrath is true and is just, and we all get what we deserve, then we need Jesus to drink our cup for us. We, we, we can't stand before God on our own merits, on our own account, because we can't afford to drink God's wrath. But if Jesus drinks the cup for us, well, that's when we know that we will be safe. And that's why verse 15 is so important, because if God's judgment is just, and true, and we get what we deserve, then we always need to be in Jesus. We always need to have Jesus drinking the cup of God's wrath for us. See, look at verse 15. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now, uh, not to get too technical here, but you remember in the seals and the trumpets, there was always a break or an interlude between the sixth and the seventh uh, trumpet or seal? Well, here, there is no break or interlude. Lah. But there is this small little thing in verse 15, right, which speaks to the reader of what to do in the face of uh, these judgments, right, the bowls. And he says, Behold, I come like a thief. Now what does that mean? Uh, does Jesus want to steal something from me? Does he need something from me? Right? 
is, there, is there something that uh, he needs to take from me? No, it's not, right? That coming like a thief means that he's going to come unexpectedly. We're not prepared. So, I've been living in my parents' house now for 40 years. And uh, during that time, I don't even remember locking the car doors, or my parents locking the car doors, because we, 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 we locked the gate. But then a few months ago, someone uh, jumped over the gate and, and opened the car doors and stole our cash card. You see, he came like a thief. We were not ready. For the last 40 years, nobody broke in because the, the gate was locked. But then now, the thief came and stole the cash card. He came unexpectedly. So it says here, we must be awake. We must stay awake. But what does that mean? Uh, if I had known that the thief was going to come and steal the cash card at night, I would have stayed awake and kept the light on or locked the door. Then he wouldn't have stolen the cash card. So what does it mean to be spiritually awake? Right? Spiritually awake for the coming of Jesus at any time. Well, I think uh, the context is very important because in Revelation chapter 3, he tells the church, right? he says, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds, not, I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you've received and heard, obeyed and repent. For if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Now, there are a series of, of exhortations or imperatives here, and uh, they are like, remember, obey, and repent. You must remember God's word, you must obey it, and you must repent. Okay, Because being alert means not being deceived by the Babylon of this world, not deceived by the false prophet of Satan. And how do you do that? By remembering what God tells you and obeying it and repenting. That's what it means to be awake. That's how we are awake for Jesus' coming. But not only that, it says that we must be awake and keep our clothes on us so that we may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now again, if you read Exodus, this is very familiar. Because when they had the Passover lamb, they were told to eat it clothed and with their shoes on because they have to be ready to leave any moment to the promised land. Well, same thing here. The Christian is to be clothed. But how is he to be clothed as he waits for Jesus to come and bring us to the promised land? Well, Revelation chapter 3 and 7 tell us, right? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. You notice that phrase there? The shameful nakedness? Very, very similar to chapter 16, verse 15, right? So that you may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Very similar idea, different words, but same idea. You see, we are to always be clothed, but in white clothes. And these white clothes, as we see in Revelation chapter 7, come because they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. We must always be wearing on us at all times the white clothes of righteousness washed by the blood of the Lamb. And how do we do that? Because we are remembering and obeying the word of Jesus Christ and repenting. That's how we are ready for Jesus to come. Now what does that mean for you? If Jesus came this morning, if Jesus came tonight, would you be ready? Are you alert? Are you awake? Are you wearing the white clothes of righteousness? If Jesus came right now, would he say, well done, good and faithful servant, because you've listened to me, you've obeyed, you've repented. 
you have not been deceived by this world you have not followed the Babylon of this world or or would he say no you are not my child now why do we meet today why do we come to church why do we go to Bible study why do we have quiet time I remember talking to some people who are no longer uh, going to church and uh, they say things like, oh, you know, I can't come to church on Sunday because I want more family time. Or maybe some single people say, I, need, I can't come to church on Sunday because I need more sleep. Now, these are all uh, good reasons, I suppose, because family and sleep and health are important things. But in the light of God's wrath, see, that's why it's so important to understand God's wrath and judgment, right? Then, what is the point of getting enough sleep here if you sleep the rest of your time in hell for eternity? Right? The reason we come to church, the reason we go to Bible study, the reason why we do quiet time is to keep us alert and awake. So we remember what God is telling us. To always be making sure that we're wearing the white clothes of the righteousness of the blood of the Lamb with us. Right? We're not here in church because we just come for the fellowship or the makan after lunch, uh, after the service or, you know, uh, because we like singing the songs, we're here to keep reminding ourselves to be alert. So what have we learned of God's judgment today? Well, it will be sudden. We must hold on. But if we are prepared, we will be victorious. But if we are God's enemies, uh, it is not enough just to know God. We, we must repent, isn't it? The idea of repentance is very true because God judges based on truth and, and, and justice. He sees all things. And we always need Jesus with us. So, in conclusion, what have we learned about God's wrath? Is it something to be embarrassed about? For non-Christians, they don't like to hear about God's wrath and God's judgment. For non-Christians, they don't like to think about it. And for too many Christians, we are like the same. We, we, we don't like to think about God's wrath and God's judgment. But God's judgment and God's wrath are real. And knowing about it actually prepares us to live for the future and helps us to live for today. Now, I think that sometimes we have uh, we've been influenced by the world and uh, Satan, and we we have a very optimistic view of life. We think, oh, the world is getting better. If we have one more invention and one more cure, the world will be a better place. To a certain extent, that's true. You know, if you have a, one more invention, maybe we have a lighter and faster iPad. But uh, morally speaking, in, in the light of God's judgment, in terms of spiritually speaking, in, in the light of God's wrath, we are not getting better. Right? We are not get, uh, they're not more people repenting. Right? They're, they're not more people turning to God. The world is under judgment. The world is under God's wrath. And uh, there's an escalation. And there will be a crunch time where it will be too late. And if you are not right with God today, then you need to be right with Him. Because that crunch time could come anytime. We could die as you walk out of church, right? We need to always be awake. We need to listen, remember, obey, and we always need the white clothes. The white clothes washed by the blood of Lamb on us. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that judgment is not something that we need to be ashamed of. That your wrath actually means liberation, freedom and salvation for your people. That we need to see that the nature of your wrath is one of truth 
and one of justice and that all the more we need to hold on to Jesus we need to be alert we need to always have in us our clothes the white clothes of Jesus washed blood dear father as we come before you today help us not to be confused help us not to be complacent help us not to be wishy-washy on this topic but to see that this is deadly serious that your judgment is not something to be trifled over but something to be taken as the most serious thing in our life and help us to be prepared for it by listening to your word and following Jesus and we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ Amen